It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Daniel Hamburger. Daniel is Chief Executive Officer of Renaissance, the leading learning analytics company. From 2006 to 16, he served as President and CEO of Adtalum Global Education. Prior to that, as Chairman and CEO of Indelic, a SaaS-based education company backed by Accenture Technology Ventures. Daniel earned an MBA from Harvard Business School and his bachelor's and master's degree in industrial engineering from the University of Michigan. Daniel Hamburger, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Great to speak with you. Wonderful to have you here today. So we kind of like to start with the early years and kind of understand a little bit about some of those early influences. Uh, tell us about, you know, kind of where you grew up, brothers, sisters, parents, you know, and how they influenced you. Sure. I grew up uh, right outside Detroit. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Eight Mile uh-huh, with Eminem. Right. So we were at Nine Mile. So <laughs> okay, okay. just uh, just there. And uh, I'm one of four boys, number three, if you're wow. in the birth order. Uh, and uh, my mother was a teacher and then was home with uh, with all those boys. And, and my dad was a doctor. Got it. Got it. So education, uh, obviously important. Uh, dad, uh, oh, yeah. sounds like finished, obviously, his medical degree. Did mom have a college degree as well as a teacher? Oh, yeah. University of Michigan. They, uh, yep. They... <laughs> <laughs> No, it's the Wolverines. Oh, Wolverines, Wolverines, right. No. Yeah. I should so, get that right. My son, as I think you and I spoke, also did his master's degree but in mechanical engineering at the uh, University of Michigan. Great school. Well, yeah. yeah, everyone in our family and extended family went to Michigan. Yeah, so awesome. It's, it was sort of like, where else would you go? In fact, growing up, it, it was sort of beat into us and the importance of education and, and um, the, uh, the line was always, you can go to any college you want as long as it's Michigan. <laughs> Got it. That's interesting. So yeah, tell us about some of the other early influencers in your life. Were there, you know, uh, extended family members, maybe, uh, you know, folks from school or teachers? Tell us a little bit about that. Probably the biggest was uh, we were so lucky to have grandparents around, um, you know, that sort of immigrant grandparent influence. And they were, you know, very much a part of our lives. So I, so I would we, say were your parents big. first generation? Yeah, or, uh-huh. so their parents came over yeah. uh, from from Russia or what's today Belarusia, right? Uh, kind of near Minsk and Pinsk, wow. and, and uh, sort of Poland, Russia, that kind of area. And um, my grandfather, in, in particular, is someone who was a real influence. My mother's uh, father, and uh, really, I think 
what you might call today, you know, Midwest values. I think it was the same right. that sure. they had, you know, you know, sort of the value, integrity, honesty, cared a lot about, you know, sort of the community, um, you know, the good name in the community kind of thing. Uh, and so I think that was an influence early on. Sure. Yeah. Cool. And uh, public schools, private schools, where did you and your brothers grow up? Public schools, yeah. Oh, this is uh, Oak Park, Michigan. Yeah, uh, right on the border of Detroit, Oak Park High. You know, right the way through, and then and then public university. Yeah, cool. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about those school days. Uh, involved in sports, you know, other types of extracurricular activities. Sure. Uh, you know, focused more on your studies. What what were those early years like? Yeah, I was uh, pretty lousy at anything that required coordination. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I know how that feels. I laugh only because I was the same way. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was kind of a rough high school, so I did learn to run. So, <laughs> so that could be a helpful skill. Exactly. So that was all I could do was was track and cross country. Yeah, yeah. So, what were yeah. your events? Like I said, you know, two miles. The long, whatever was the longest in, in tracks, <laughs> marathons two, as well. Two it's miles, okay. yeah, yeah, and then yeah. cross country, which is three. Because I really didn't have the natural speed, but I did have a work ethic. So and the I could, endurance. Yeah. yeah, I had, I had, and sort of the, you know, could take the pain, I guess. And so the distance was about the only place I had a chance. <laughs> right. And that was continued through high school. Uh, yeah. Any yeah, college sports at all or intramural no, or club or otherwise? Uh, no, but I was very involved in music as well. I played huh. uh, uh, violin and piano oh, all awesome. through school. And I, I continued the, with the fiddle at uh, Michigan and played in the orchestra there and and even after I played in a community orchestra and still, still, still screw around with it. And sometimes I'll play with, uh, with my kids. Well, they say that, that music specifically, I think piano and, and violin, if I'm not mistaken, are usually associated with, with pretty good math skills. Did, did you find that to be true? Has that been yeah. an area math, of strength for you? Yeah. Yes. Math and, uh, languages too. Are often, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So I've, I'm pretty good at picking up another language, you know, just a little bit or, um, you know, so I can kind of at least communicate at a basic level with folks. What, what languages so, did you study, well, or have you picked up over the yes, years? Yes, you know, Spanish and and uh, Portuguese. Uh, we uh, the last shop where I was, we had a big Brazilian operation, so I picked up enough Portuguese to just you know make an attempt, and and people really appreciate that kind of effort that Absolutely. you make, and yeah. uh, and uh, Hebrew as well. Ah, awesome, awesome. Any overseas assignments over the years or extended yeah. travel to any of those locations? Yeah, and so when I was at Bain, uh, Bain & Company, the uh, consulting firm, they uh, I started in the London office and then they kind of tapped me to go to Spain and uh, worked a lot out of Barcelona. So that's where I picked up the Spanish and, um, and, and worked a couple of uh, big consulting projects in Barcelona, in uh, great, great city, great city. Oh, I have a daughter God. that lives there and loves it. Oh, I don't think we'll ever pull her out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many years did you see in Barcelona? So I was uh, over about three years in London, uh, Warsaw, Poland, and in Barcelona was a piece of that. So nothing better than to kind of open your eyes to cultural differences. And I, we'll get to that, you know, in, in a while as it relates to company. But I've always found that that international experience can really be super uh, when you get back to a domestic uh, job and, uh, you know, you need to re really understand those cultural differences and, and the importance of keeping culture within a company. Uh, did you did you struggle at all with any of those international assignments and, and adapting those cultures? London probably wasn't too difficult, but, you know, I'm sure Spain and, and, and Barcelona had, uh, you know, some 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 differences in the way people live. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, Poland was the toughest. And Poland, because, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. was no such thing as a quick, oh, we're going to go out for a quick lunch. You know, two... <laughs> 
two hours later, you know, you there was no concept. If you're eating out, it's very fancy and formal. Yeah. yeah. So you had to kind of get used to things like that. Let's rewind a little bit. Uh, wanted to touch on maybe some of the other things you did in your early years. Any, you know, entrepreneurial things. A lot of our CEOs have, you know, done, you know, paper routes or perhaps they worked retail or, um, you know, sold gift cards at Christmas time. Was there, was that kind of part of uh, what you and your brothers did growing up for, for the extra spending money? You know, I, not so much in high school. Um, we were so busy with activity, the sports and the music I was talking about. And uh, a little bit more in college, you know, I always had, uh, you know, jobs uh, every summer and um, learned a lot from, from those internships. Tell us about some of those. What, what were some of the internships and, and lessons learned? One was at General Motors uh, GM Tech Center. Oh, yeah. Their, their tech, technical center out in Warren, Michigan. And um, so I basically, that's where I started to learn to code. I was, I was uh, programming a, a scheduling, scheduling software. So that was kind of opened my eyes to, to coding. Um, or uh, Procter and Gamble. I had a manufacturing manufacturing engineering internship in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Oh, awesome! Yeah, is that actually, a soap plant there? Or yeah, it was a paper paper paper. Plant. Yeah, right. toilet paper basically was my claim to fame. And Charmin's their big brand, I believe. Right? Got, yeah, and they um, so this was it uh, stayed at St. Norbert's College in the dorm, which is famously uh, was the home summer home of the Packers. Right. So you can oh, see cool. Green Bay Packers running around, you know, in training camp. Now, were these during your college, undergraduate yeah, years? Yeah, college, undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, excellent, excellent. Great exposure. And uh, uh, great companies as well to kind of get a feeling for it. What were, you know, some of the takeaways? Give us an idea in terms of some of those internships and, and the things that were learned there. I think at uh, GM, you know, I sort of learned about software and, and, and coding. At Procter & Gamble, it was more about uh, process. How do we improve the process? And my job was... Um, a sort of a project to figure out the uh, all the costs of of quality problems as they were uh, making paper, and um, so that really, was this during the TQ days when Procter was yeah yeah so Edwards Deming or Duran uh, Six Sigma all those sort of uh, lean techniques that uh, actually the Americans taught the Japanese that's right yeah <laughs> Japanese the Americans turned around later. and yeah they they taught it back to us. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. I learned a lot of that stuff, which has served to this day, you know, uh, you know the principles of lean and uh, uh, process improvement are, are applicable no matter what industry you're in, I think. Now, you chose uh, uh, industrial engineering, I believe, as your undergraduate. Uh, you know, you've explained why Michigan was the place you went. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking behind that degree. Was that uh, something you were inclined to do, thought about in high school? You know, give us a little bit of a, uh, some knowledge on uh, your choice of undergraduate studies. No, actually, I thought I was going to go to law school because that's sort of all really? I knew. Yeah, exactly. doctor or a lawyer, you know, the traditional kind of a immigrant Dad mentality. A exactly. Right. And so, so a family friend had said, well, um, I'm a patent lawyer. Oh, I thought that was very interesting. He said, well, you should think about engineering because engineering plus law is the best background for that. So I took a couple of engineering courses. Uh, and it was industrial engineering, and I really loved it. It was all about what I was just talking about with the uh, Procter and Gamble process right? improvement, process no. improvement exactly, or making trade offs, or how do you optimize uh, across multiple objectives at the same time? You're trying to balance multiple objectives, and that's what industrial engineering and operations research is all about. So that's how I got into that. So fast forward a little bit. If you look back today, you know, sitting in your corner office and some of the studies that you did and those internship experience, what, what were some of the key takeaways, those things, those skills, maybe those traits 
that you use today, you know, in your everyday job from what you picked up during the industrial engineering education and, you know, doing some of those uh, process improvement internships? Sure. The, the biggest, I would say, is how do you optimize across multiple objectives, as I was just saying? So, you know, you want to optimize the uh, you know, economics or the profitability, but at the same time, you know, you, you want to make sure that you've got a, you know, you're investing for the long term. How do you balance the short term and the long term? Things like that, I would say that kind of thinking is, um, is something that I continue to use today. And, um, uh, you know, I think you had some, did some work before you went on to Harvard. What, were that, what was that first job that you took and why coming out of uh, Michigan? First job was Accenture or Arthur Anderson and Company back in the day and then became Anderson Consulting, then Accenture. And uh, it was a combination of the, they had the manufacturing kind of work. They also had the um, techno, outsourced you know, software development. So really combined both of those pieces of what I'd been studying and what I was interested in. And most of the time I was uh, working at, it was funny, I had a job offer to go to Ford and, uh, and I had this one at Accenture. And so I took the Accenture one, even though it paid less, but I thought their training, their famous, um, uh, kind of internal university in St. Charles, Illinois was sort of legend, legendary. Uh, and I thought it'd be great training. So I took that one and then they put me on the Ford job. <laughs> I was working for Very Ford anyway, most of the time. So, uh, you know, writing code for, for some outsourced projects for Ford. So was Accenture pure consulting at that stage? It's been in their early days, right? Or have they been established as a consulting firm for a while? Consulting, um, outsourced, you know, software development technology. And then also we had developed a software development methodology. So today people call it software development lifecycle, SDLC or something like that. This is an early version of that, that uh, Accenture used internally. And someone had the great idea of productizing that. So they put me on this project to, uh, uh, ride around with this uh, former IBM, you know, software salesman that they brought in, and I was sort of like his sales engineer and bag carrier, and did sales demos and things like that, which was great experience early on in, in technical sales. And um, uh, you'd mentioned, I think both GM and Proctor. Were there other internships that you took during your your years? Well, my first one actually before either one of those was working for my brother, who was we were looking for the entrepreneurial. He had started his own business. He had developed a piece of software that ran doctor's offices. It's kind of like an ERP uh, for a doctor's office. And uh, so I worked for him setting up systems, stringing cables in doctor's offices and <laughs> testing the software, doing it however it took. So. And so um, Proctor and your brother and, and possibly GM uh, probably wanted to have you come back. How did you kind of make those decisions around, you know, choosing the Accenture direction versus maybe some of those other experiences? Sure. Kind of like I was describing, you know, yeah, Proctor, Ford, uh, you know, big companies, great experience. I think, I think you can't go wrong with any of those. And I still think that if, when I talk to folks who are early in their career, sometimes I'll get a call for advice and so forth. And I always say that I think if you get that academy experience early on, you really learn how business works, then do the entrepreneurship thing. Um, exactly. And so I think some people who jump right into the small don't learn some of those lessons. That's true. Yeah. Of how you work in teams and how do you work with people who are remote and just the big companies established ways of doing things. Um, which, you know, the negative side is they can be big and bureaucratic, but the positive side is they do have good processes that you can use at that smaller entrepreneurial. So I, I really chose Accenture again, because I thought I'd get the best training and learning. And I just figured 
you know, in, my, in your 20s, you're sort of, you're still just investing. It's just an extension of your education, really. And so where, where could I get the most learning? And I thought that was Accenture. Did you start kind of an individual contributor of yeah. responsibility for moving into management? Yeah. Yeah. And then I got promoted to kind of, so I started as, you know, coding and then I uh, uh, ran a development team. What were some of those uh, early leadership lessons, particularly from, you know, former bosses and mentors during those early years? I think most of us, I'm certainly guilty of, you know, when you first get uh, leadership or management responsibility, you tend to be a micromanager. You know, you don't know how to delegate effectively. You don't know how to let go. You don't know when to dive in and when not to dive, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm sure I messed that up, you know, big time. And so uh, obviously kind of figuring that out and um, how to delegate, did you have any good bosses or mentors that were, you know, good examples of that, that you kind of modeled your behavior after? Was that part of, you know, your learning process in those early years? Sure. Yeah. I think over the years I've had, you know, some, you know, better managers and, and not as good. And I think the best ones, you, know, you sort of learn how to, how to do, um, how to trust your people and how to gauge that. And I kind of, you know, now I, if I'm entering a new relationship, you know, it's, it starts with trust and especially now I'm at the kind of more senior level. So you're working with senior people. They would, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be at that level, you know, if they weren't pretty good. So, you know, the, the default position is a lot of trust and, uh, I've just developed some systems to, um, how do we kind of hold each other accountable in a, in a, in a positive way. Daniel, one of the questions we like to ask is, you know, what's the best or worst lesson that you've learned from a previous boss or bosses? I think the best lesson is, um, to steal from, uh, one of Jack Welch's books. I was, that stuck with me. He says, you got to get every brain in the game, (laughs) get every brain in the game. I like that. I I think, Yeah. yeah, it's, it means encouraging people to speak up and to challenge to disagree, you know, productively. And, uh, there's, that's not easy. That sounds easy, but there's so much of human nature and most organizational cultures that you're fighting against to get that, that you have to actively, you know, do things to promote that. Yeah. How do you do that? Give us some tools or, you know, action steps that, that make that happen for you. One kind of easy thing to do is to be wrong. And to be seen to be wrong. Now, if you be wrong publicly, so in your team meeting, staff meeting, town hall meeting, you can say, hey, you know, I really thought we should do A. You know, we should go down path A. And you know what? Joe over here, um, you know, he kind of pushed back. And he said, you know, you really think about B. And you know what? You know, dang it. We're going to B. <laughs> you know, Joe's right. I was wrong. I really appreciate that. Thank you for speaking up. And uh, that's, the, that's the kind of behavior that we want to reward around here. Humility you know, goes a long way, doesn't it? You only have to do that about once. Right. Kind of, <laughs> right let me approximate. Right. Just approximately once. And you will see uh, most organizations and cultures open up. And people are like, really? I can? And it's like, yeah. So you can speak up. And then you get people speaking up. You know, it's a very interesting uh, thought. And, and, you know, it's funny, we've, we've had CEOs that have really been uh, at, at polar opposites on this. Some that have said, hey, you know, my biggest strength is I'm vulnerable, right? You know, I put it out there. You know, I'm not always going to be right. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. 
And we've had other CEOs that have been, you know, probably more from a command and control type of culture that says, oh, I would never show my weakness. You know, I would never be in a position of, you know, showing my vulnerability. You know, it's my job to know, you know, what's going on. Where would you kind of put yourself on that continuum? There's no question. The the other side. The, yeah, the vulnerability, uh, got humility. It. Well, my job to know, I, mean, I know there's different styles and you can respect different styles can work. This is one where I'm about 99% sure that there isn't, both styles are not right. In other words, that, that, that person who's like, my job to know everything, um, you know, one chief and a thousand minions, that is just not the way to achieve the optimal productivity of, of the team. Certainly not a 21st century, you know, organization. Yeah, I don't think any century organization. I mean, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, this is how the U.S. beat the Japanese in the Pacific War was just, we were so much more creative and could improvise and could do that. They were so command and control, they couldn't do anything. Or on D-Day, you know, Rommel was away for his wife's birthday, famously, and everyone was frozen. They couldn't do anything because Rommel wasn't there. So when you have that sort of genius at the top, telling everybody what to do and, and all the decisions have to go through the eye of the needle of that person. I'm sorry. I, that doesn't scale. That doesn't. Yeah. That, that, so I'm hugely, you know, uh, a student of, of the opposite school of management on that one. Let's talk a little bit about company culture. We touched on it with your international experience earlier. You know, what are your thoughts on, on building a company culture? Well, uh, I think I'm a huge proponent of the importance of culture to um, the productivity of an organization, the ability to get stuff done. To me, and it, I'm not just a proponent of it or an enthusiast of it because I like it. It's because it's based on the data and experience and it, what's shown. It. And here's my simple definition of culture: is just how do we relate to each other? How do we work together to get stuff done? You know, to get stuff done in pursuit of our higher purpose and what we're trying to do in this organization, you know, for our constituencies and for our customers. And so um, that, that's my overarching thought about the importance of culture. It's really about, if you don't want to use the word culture, you can say, well, how can we have a framework of execution? Fine. That, I, that I would accept that just as much. It's about how do we work together to get stuff done. So you've worked for some large companies, obviously Accenture, terrific in terms of training development, Bain, of course, you know, historic in their consulting area. And then, you know, Renaissance, of course, is a, a smaller company. I'm not sure about Ed Talum, but I assume they're probably also in the middle market. It was about, right? uh, Ed Talum, Ed Talum was about uh, 2 billion in, in revenue. Okay, 2 billion, so much yeah, larger. public, okay. whereas so, Renaissance, so is, Renaissance you, you, is, you know, below, below half a billion. Kind exactly, of range so in you, private. you've... You've kind of made that, you know, that cross the Rubicon, so to speak, yeah, from those larger equity, companies. Yeah, private equity, public, uh, <laughs> startup. I've had a chance to have different experiences, all the, which has yeah. been great. So, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, the importance of culture as you kind of go from, you know, those larger, probably more established companies as well as more established cultures, I think it's fair to say, to, you know, obviously now in the middle market and, you know, is it more important, less important? Do you feel as CEO, you've got more of a, you know, a direction as it relates to kind of setting the company culture? Do you let other people around you set that? You know, how does that work at Renaissance? It's, it's as important, no matter of size. I've seen some of the best lessons I learned were from a startup. Um, and it also at a larger, like Ad Talum, it was, we, we, we did shape the culture. 
in terms of your question, yeah, the CEO has to be, it has to start with the CEO. It has to start at the top with the CEO, with the board, and with the CEO's uh, first team. So the uh, executive leadership team, or we call ELT, whatever you call that, the, the CEO's uh, direct reports. That team has got to be a high performance team and has got to model the behaviors because there's every organization is some people call it that uh, you, you see the shadow of the leader. I've heard that phrase. It will take on the characteristics, you know, of Steve Jobs at Apple or of, you know, Jack Welch, or G, whatever it is, you know, that leader does set the tone and that leadership team sets the tone. How much time do you talk about culture with a your lot. ELT or your board? A lot, a ton, all the time. You know, almost every meeting, almost every, every you know, we'll do a quarterly town hall, global town hall with all, all colleagues and we'll webcast. The great thing about today's technology, you can webcast and you can have a global town hall and we'll talk about culture every single time. Well, what would you say is unusual or unique about Renaissance's culture? Uh, I think it's extremely uh, driven by higher, higher purpose. In, in case, uh, our purpose statement is to accelerate learning for all, That's, which is a wonderful, powerful statement. I love that word accelerate. Um, you know, how do we get more people literate around the world faster? And, and we can't wait. The sense of urgency that's behind that. And you can take that dual meaning. You can talk about the acceleration of our own internal systems and processes to enable us to accelerate the learning for the educators and students. So it's, it's a sense of higher purpose, uh, which is nice when you're in an education oriented it's, it's educational software is what, is what Renaissance does, uh, or you know healthcare. But it does. You can you can have a sense of higher purpose anywhere. I was at Granger, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, and you know we sold mops and motors and industrial supplies. Well, guess what? Granger, when there was a hurricane, Granger would send volunteers and would donate you know generators and send people down to hurricane affected with Granger generators. So you know that's you can have a sense of higher purpose behind any organization. Uh, you know, because that organization is providing a livelihood for all of the colleagues who are working there. And it's providing a great service for whatever, you know, whatever service provides to its customers and community. So it doesn't have to be education or healthcare or something that sort of has an extra advantage, which is nice. You can create a, a culture grounded in a purpose, grounded in values, wherever you are. Let's talk about how you attract people. Uh, how do you recruit against that? Do you have specific questions that you or the people in your organization that, um, you know, ask as it relates to trying to get at that within people? Yeah, we would um, actually uh, share our statement, kind of our culture one pager, which are our statement of purpose, the vision, and then the values, uh, which are the key three key ingredients in my mind. Uh, and we would share that with job applicants, you know, early on in the process and often get the feedback, gosh, I've never seen that before where some, you know, where they shared that. And this is the kind of organization I like this. These values feel, you know, I share these values and that's great. That's the kind of people we want to hire are people who share those values. And that, you know, other people might be great, but they have a different set of values or a different way of working and they might be a better fit for, you know, maybe, you know, an investment bank or something that's a little bit different. Kind of gives them an opportunity to self-select as well, right? Because they can take a look at that. Do is there questions that you would ask where you try to see if there's alignment to the culture as part of you or yeah, you might ask, uh, have you ever had a you know a, a disagreement or a conflict or you know you thought we should go A and you know someone else thought we should go B and how did you deal with that? What happened? How did that get resolved? And you know 
and then you get the answer, you know, what, what happened, but then, you know, how did, how, how would people have felt if we, you know, when we talked to the other people involved, you know, what would they say about how that felt? And you're kind of listening for, hey, you know, I didn't agree with the answer, but at least, you know, my voice was heard in the process and this person respected that. Those are the kinds of things you might be listening for. Daniel, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Specifically, maybe for, you know, direct hires, executive suite uh, or executive leadership team. You know, especially at the executive level, if you can give me kind of three things, are they smart? Well, first of all, do they have integrity, which is sort of table stakes? Are they smart and are they willing to learn? You know, I've had some really smart, but they weren't so good on the learning agility, as it's called in in the trade. Um, Or, you know, some folks that just don't really have the raw horsepower. You got to have both. And uh, anything else uh, deeper in the organization? You know, let's say, for example, you uh, probably don't get involved in a lot of the hiring outside of the ELTs, but there's might be a couple of key positions from now, time to time, maybe your direct report that's come in, and you might just have a limited amount of time with those people. What, what kind of things do you try to hear from them? What do you focus in on? Well, it might surprise you that I, I will uh, get involved. Typically, you know, certainly anyone that's on that top team, anyone who's a direct report, to one of my direct reports, I, I would be part of the selection process, you know, probably a finalist or two. Oh, and then I always let people know anyone who, who would like uh, my point of view and have me part of the search process or have me just call the person to kind of help sell them, if you will, at the end of the process on taking the offer. So I will actually talk to a lot of, a lot of candidates at various levels, if you will, around the organization. And I think in addition to what I mentioned before, you're looking for uh, someone who's collaborative, um, knows how to work with other people, um, you know, doesn't have all the answers. Um, Real cultural alignment types cultural, of questions. Yeah, cultural fit, cultural alignment. Yeah, for sure. And I'm looking for a certain amount of uh, ambition. I mean, I interviewed a guy uh, recently, and so I said, you know, so what are you trying to do with your career? And he said, well, he was a level down from the, the, uh, the C-suite guy. I was like, I want that guy's job, and then I want your job. <laughs> and I was like, great, okay. <laughs> you're hired, basically, <laughs> if, if you are uh, willing to put in what it takes to get there. If you want that tomorrow, this is probably not a good place. But if you, uh, if you are open to learning, if you, I would be very happy to be a mentor for you. And I know that you know, your immediate manager would too. And if you are open, really open to uh, learning new ways, not thinking of the answers. Uh, we will mentor you. And I think this can be a great platform for you to have a long-term career here. Um, but I want you to think about that. And, and, and that's got to be a part of the deal. And, uh, and you know, he's on board now and, and doing, doing well. Well, Danny Hamburger, we're almost out of time, but we do have one last question we always like to ask. And you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that's got their eyes on the corner office. Um, you know, maybe they're in middle management and like the gentleman that, uh, or, or woman that you might just have hired, or maybe someone that's in the C-suite, you know, uh, or, or perhaps even just starting out their career, coming out of college and, you know, thinking about, gosh, I want to run something some days. What are, what are the types of things that you would share with them? Well, you know, I definitely would say what I, what I just mentioned, which is you've got to be open, open, not closed to feedback and to learning. Um, if you're someone who follows, uh, uh, it's very popular these days in terms of mindfulness or meditation, things like that. You hear a lot about this idea of being open, open to learning, open to feedback. 
and not just open, but so here's where I would take it in the business context. You've got to proactively go and get it. I mean, I'm, I'm more and more, I, I didn't used to do this as much, but now I am constantly asking for feedback um, from my direct reports, from the board, from others. Uh, I've taken to it when I first became a CEO, I was exposed to something that only CEOs get, which is the, the executive session. So in the board meeting, you're in the board meeting, and at the end, they kick you out. And they have the executive <laughs> they session. They have their own discussion. Exactly. Right? So yeah. without you yeah. in the room, so they can talk about you. you know, what do you think? And so then they come back, and you, hopefully, you, if it's done right, and there's some real best practices, maybe for another talk, uh, conversation, we could talk about this. I've written a whole article about this. Um, and because what I, occurred to me after a couple of these, I was like, why don't I do this with my team? And so I said, I told the team, you know, we're going to do, we're going to do the reverse executive session where I kick myself out. And a couple of times a year, I, you guys talk about me or about our team or how we're working or whatever you want. And I've gotten tremendous feedback from the reverse executive session. And so uh, it's really learning agility, openness to feedback. And then the other thing I would say just finally is knowing yourself. I've talked to so many folks, you know, I get a lot of calls, you know, hey, I'm a recent Harvard Business School grad. <laughs> I want to work the network, you know, advice, blah, blah, blah. You know, want to be a CEO. It's like, do you really want to be a CEO? Maybe your path is really to be the CMO. You're the chief marketing officer, the chief strategy officer. Or the, and I've seen so many times, because it was sort of the cool thing or beat into their head at business school or their friends or pressure to be the CEO, they think that's what they want to do when really that's not. And then I've seen so many folks who wake up finally and realize, you know what, that's actually not what I want to do. I'm really much, I'm a better functional head. I want to be the chief people officer. I want to be the chief strategy officer. And when you know that, you get yourself on that path, you'd be much happier. So it's kind of like really know what you want to do. And, um, and it works out a little bit better than, than trying to, 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 to push on a string there. Great counsel. Daniel, once again, thank you very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Well, thank you, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brent Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.